Once you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I brought water because it's a whole lot of talking. All right, if you're new, here's the idea. At Van City, we actually typically run two teaching series at all times concurrently. So every few months, we begin this new spiritual discipline, uh, a practice or a lifestyle thing taken from Jesus of Nazareth or an, a principle of emotional health. And then we kind of teach through it here on Sunday evenings before we go out into our communities and give it a shot. Um, so we've done things like prayer and fasting, silence and solitude. Most recently, we've been going through the practice of hospitality, and we'll be back in that soon. But when we're not doing that, uh, we take a break from that work, and we go through a book of the Bible and kind of teach through it line by line, one Sunday at a time. For Cry to Spell now, we've been in one first century biography of Jesus authored by a gentleman called Matthew. And uh, we actually have a lot of work to do tonight, so you guys up for it? Feeling sharp despite, despite this <laughs> cosmic terror that happened? Uh, get your pen and notepad ready, shake off the distraction that you brought with, it, brought with you, and let's get to work. All right, we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 35. The text says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Then heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. This is essentially, as scholars think, a sermon from Jesus, and it is about something that the church has traditionally referred to as mission. Now, the word mission can be a bit misleading. If you've been around the church for any length of time, chances are you hear mission and you think missionary, as in like somebody who travels to the developing world to work with impoverished children or something like that. Or maybe you think of mission as like a strategic new way to talk to your friends and coworkers and your neighbors about Jesus and why you follow Jesus. Or maybe you hear mission and you think of social justice, you know, feeding the hungry, volunteering at a food bank or soup kitchen, that kind of thing. And a very small handful of you guys are naturally wired for excitement and enthusiasm when it comes to any or all of those things. God bless you, the one or two of you that are here. But... For about 90% of any given crowd, most of that stuff kind of ranks somewhere around, you know, like exercise and flossing um, on the list of things that we know we should do, but we just don't want to. Sorry, is Aaron here? Sorry, Aaron, about the, the crack on flossing. Where, where is he? He's going to be so mad. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Man, he's a dentist. He gave me such a talking to about flossing. I'm like, all right, Aaron, dang it, I'll floss. Jeez. But... <laughs> 
I would argue that Jesus' vision for mission wasn't relegated to, you know, people who want to travel around the world or people who are wildly extroverted. What Jesus is talking about here is essentially apprenticeship. Now, up until now in the story, Jesus has been teaching. He's been talking to people about this new reality, this new way of life that he called the kingdom of God. He's been healing the sick. He's been driving out demons. He's been calling and caring for the overlooked and the oppressed and the unwanted. And in the story, he's been doing all of this in the presence of disciples, which is a word that describes Jesus' apprentices, people who are training beneath him. Uh, my friend Kyle, who is here at Van City, he, he uh, owns a tattoo shop. He's a tattoo artist. He could, in theory, commit to operating as the sole artist at Resurrection Inc., but that's a great way to limit the amount of work that they could realistically accomplish. So what he's done instead is he's taken an apprentice, and that apprentice will spend time with the teacher, learn the craft, and then eventually take on that work themselves. We actually think that that is the goal of every single person who decides to follow Jesus. And it actually comes in three different dimensions. The first is to be with Jesus. The text says that Jesus called disciples that they might be with Him. And then, eventually, the more that they are with Jesus, they become like Jesus. And finally, they will do what Jesus did. And it's actually in that order, as we now see exemplified in Jesus' actual teaching methods. Here we have the moment that Jesus commissions His disciples for that last dimension of apprenticeship, do what He did, and He does so with kind of a small mini-sermon. And this is, of course, not the first time that Jesus has delivered a crucial sermon. In fact, the opening verse in tonight's text, which is chapter 9, verse 35, if you're looking, we've actually seen before. This is uh, Matthew 4, 23 as a reference. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Sounds familiar. And that same wording in the original language shows up just before Jesus' landmark speech, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. In Greek, those two lines of text from each distinct passage are nearly identical, word for word. One scholar notes this, moved by people's helplessness, by their physical and spiritual desolation, Matthew's Jesus forms two major speeches. The first, the Sermon on the Mount, to teach Christian life. The second, to teach Christian mission, the inhaling and exhaling, respectively, of Christian existence. So, this is Matthew, the author's way of telling the reader, you are now ready for Jesus' next set of incredible instructions. And we, the readers, are kind of acting as would-be apprentices while we read along with the story. And in tonight's text, we learn about four specific things that empower the work of Jesus' disciples. The first is God's loving compassion for all people. The second is prayer. The third is community, or the third is the Holy Spirit, pardon me, and the final is community. Now, a brief word on each of those. The first and most essential motivation that propels us to do the things that Jesus did is, put quite simply, because God cares deeply about people. It's really that simple. Look back down at chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Greek, that line, he had compassion, is actually one word, splachnizomai, which I think is a really weird word that was stuck in my head all, all week. I started to use it as like a, almost like a pseudo swear, ah, splachnizomai. Um, but the, it, try it, it's actually pretty catchy. The root word 
literally means viscera or like inner organs. Thus, the line reads, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt for them in his guts, essentially, in his very marrow, so to speak. He had compassion on them. Jesus doesn't sort of look out on a hurting world and cock his head and say, oh, man, that's too bad. He is racked with a deep-seated sense of insatiable compassion right down to his innermost being. And listen, wherever you're at in your journey with Jesus, if you do claim to follow him, You can and will do the kinds of things that Jesus did. That's part of the whole journey. But, listen, you will not realize your full potential until you care about people because compassion drives mission. Years ago, uh, I attended a performance of a once very controversial musician, and outside I was kind of in line waiting to get in, and there were fundamentalist protesters out there with the signs and the megaphones and stuff. They were yelling about hell. Everyone's going to hell. And uh, I kind of passed them in line on the way, and I engaged them kindly because I was kind of interested. I thought, this will be weird. And, uh, and I'm not sure what I expected to happen, but this fellow that I was like a foot away from, he would not talk to me. He would not look me in the eyes. He looked through me, and he went on shouting in his megaphone. And today, you know, social media outrage is the new megaphone and sandwich board. It empowers Outrage of all kinds for the right and the left, the fundamentalists and the hyperliberals and everyone in between, really a great many people in between, those polls are becoming increasingly vocal. Everyone wants to be upset. And all of it works to the same end, which is to reduce humanity to camps and then to drain the personhood from those with whom we disagree. And notice, Jesus isn't driven by his frustration with sin. He's driven by compassion, and he clearly dislikes what sin has done to God's world, but that's not what compels him. Jesus isn't empowered by condemnation, and he does clearly believe that there is a dichotomy between those who do and do not embrace his way of life, but that's not what compels him. Jesus is driven instead by compassion. He is empowered by a loving concern for the well-being, the best of all people, not by outrage with their failure. Now, I, I don't really know any hyper-fundamentalist at Van City personally. If you're here, hey, welcome, just the same. Um, but, you know, chances are, since we live in the Pacific Northwest, which is a, a very modern, thoroughly post-Christian world in which more of us are kind of concerned with damage control regarding the way of Jesus than we are with, like, megaphones and sandwich boards and condemning everyone around us. But I think we do have our own ways of dehumanizing our enemies. At least I know I do. Um, When I encounter someone, like for instance, with like a heavy-handed theology that I find deplorable personally, um, it's it's hard for me. Those, you know, or those like extended family get-togethers when the topic of conversation starts to veer toward like guns and politics and you're like, I'm out, you just leave the, at least I do, I'm like, I'm out and I just walk out of the room. Or when I read like the news and see more and more racism and sexism and violence and gun worship and political idolatry from so-called Christians, something in me wants to condemn them, frankly. Something in me wants to reduce them to a group, the wrong ones, and then cast them aside. But really, that kind of disposition grows out of the corrupt soil of my brokenness, frankly. And it doesn't mean that those things are okay or that I should overlook them, but Jesus is uniquely capable of somehow seeing the person in the brokenness and to still have compassion for them. And it's this very compassion that enables him to do something about it. One scholar I read this week puts it like this, when sin is stressed inordinately as a source of mission, compassion is smothered rather than stoked. 
When Jesus looks out over the world, it is first of all people's helplessness that he sees. It is their depression, oppression, and suppression that affects him most. So, prepared to act on his compassion, Jesus commands that his disciples back up their work with prayer. Look down at verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, meaning there's lots of work to do, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, God, to send out workers into his harvest field. I actually love Jesus' uh, realism here. He is, in, in essence, admitting that there is more need than there are resources to meet that need. So Jesus proposes a very specific means of addressing this problem, which is pray about it. Pray for more people to meet said need. And this is actually pretty fascinating because we know by now that Jesus is terribly pragmatic in his approach to mission. When asked to address problems, Jesus gets up and he goes to do something about it. He is active in his compassion, not passive. And prayer is actually a part of that activity. It's not just an idle one-way conversation, but it is an active partnership with God. Thus, here, the most pragmatic resource in the face of seemingly impossible odds is to go and do, yes, and that's why Jesus is sending them out, but also to pray. And pray for what exactly? More people, more disciples. And when that prayer is answered, what will these disciples be doing? This brings us to the third necessary component in empowering the mission of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, if you know the story of the New Testament, you may be confused by me calling this the Holy Spirit, and here's what I mean. In the story, the Holy Spirit hasn't actually been given to all disciples of Jesus just yet. That comes later after Jesus has died and come back to life. Jesus himself told his disciples that that's the way that it was going to happen. John's gospel has Jesus putting it this way himself. Very truly I tell you, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So what's happening at this point in the story is not necessarily that just yet. It's actually a precursor to that incredible reality. And this is an imperfect analogy, but this is something like an apprentice in training who's given tools to work with before they're actually fully commissioned to do the work of their master. So it's like Luke before he builds his own lightsaber, or it's like Link before he finds the master sword, or Adonis Creed before he wears his father's name in the ring, or Poe before he reads the dragon scroll. If you've seen Kung Fu Panda, it's great. Give it a shot. Um, now, of course, in all those stories, um, they are capable and they are empowered, but something incredible is going to come later that will mature that empowerment into incredible new realms of capability. For now, they've been with Jesus, they are over time becoming like Jesus, and they will here begin to do the kinds of things that Jesus has been doing. And he lists this group of 12 by name before giving them specific instructions. So let's move through this text and take a look at how those instructions continue to apply to you and I today over and against the way life is often done around us. You guys still all right? You feeling all right? Yep. Great. Thank you. If you need coffee, yeah, I guess don't get it now. You'll just distract me. All right. Back to the Bible. Skip down to Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. Now, hold on a second, pause. 
If you are a Jewish reader, as we think was likely the case with the majority of Matthew's original audience, this number, 12, would leap off the page. See, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the people of Israel were made up of 12 tribes, and Israel herself was God's chosen vehicle to bring about redemption to a broken and hurting world. Now, of course, in the story, if you know the Old Testament, Israel doesn't exactly get the job done. So now here's Jesus of Nazareth a man who is proclaiming that God's kingdom is breaking into reality, it's come near, and he's now appointing 12 apostles to go about and begin enacting this new reality by bringing redemption to a broken and hurting world. And that symbolism is actually terribly intentional. This is God's plan to rescue humanity, and it's finally coming to fruition. So now that we know who, verse 5 goes on with the where and the how. These 12 Jesus sent out, with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any, enter any town of the Samaritans. Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the same one Jesus has been teaching. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now up until now, in Matthew's gospel, who has been the one who has, as verse 7 and 8 say, proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing leprosy, driving out demons? Who's been doing all that? Jesus, right. So Jesus, the teacher and the master, is now sending out his apprentices to do exactly what they have been watching Jesus do, day in and day out for some time now. He doesn't want them to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans just yet. That's always been the plan, but that's going to come later. And there are actually restrictions that Jesus places on this journey. Look down at verse 9. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey, no extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Now, if you're reading this, uh, you might be thinking like, huh, that's weird. Suddenly pragmatic Jesus doesn't seem all that pragmatic at all. Um, but let's take a closer look. That line, do not get any gold, might actually be better translated as do not win any gold, meaning Jesus specifically instructs His disciples to avoid profiting from this particular mission. In the ancient world, as is really still the case today, traveling preachers and speakers and healers and so on expected to be paid when they went town to town. And in this sense, Jesus isn't necessarily forbidding the disciples from ever exchanging any funds, ever, per se, but He does forbid them from winning money or profiting, essentially. In other words, this mention is in no sense economically motivated. He doesn't even want them to appear as if they are concerned for finances. In this sense, the ensuing commands, don't take a bag or an extra shirt and all that, are maybe a tad hyperbolic. Jesus wants His disciples to step into each village without the slightest air of ulterior motives. So here's an analogy. From time to time, I'll do a sermon or a lecture or a class here or elsewhere about slavery in the fashion industry, which is something that I'm terribly interested in. It's why I wear the same outfit every day and why almost all of that outfit was purchased secondhand, because I don't want my purchases to support slavery. Now, buying clothes secondhand is actually great because it reduces waste, it funnels no new money back into certain companies with immoral practices, so it becomes a lot easier to shop. It kind of frees you up to find stuff. So we get virtually everything that both of our kids wear secondhand because when you rule out slave labor, it really leaves you few options except secondhand. But the thing is, there are certain brands more notorious than others for unethical dealings. So I'm the guy who goes around giving lectures and writing about not supporting slavery and human trafficking and child labor in the fashion industry. 
So even if someone like gifted me a free used pair of Nikes or whatever it might be, it'd probably be a bad idea to go around wearing them. Even though I haven't technically violated my principle in the pure sense, it just sends what is at best a mixed message. So that is, I think, a bit like what is going on here. Jesus is absolutely in favor of simplicity, sure, what in modern language is called minimalism. He doesn't want wealth or excess for his followers. We've covered all that in the Sermon on the Mount. But as the New Testament goes on, we'll see that even Jesus' most faithful disciples earned livings, they lived in houses, they had and spent money. But here, while on this particular mission, Jesus wants to eliminate even the possibility of suspicion. So his apprentices are not on mission to make a buck. That has to be clear. They aren't fancy, and they aren't concerned with the finer things in life, to say the least. And then he goes on to say, don't bring a staff either. Now, in the ancient world, a a staff was used for more than just walking, though that looks pretty cool. Um, It was actually used for self-defense. So we know from Matthew's gospel that disciples of Jesus have absolutely no use for violent self-defense. They are to love their enemies, turn the other cheek, bless those who persecute them. And now that teaching is actually being put into action. Leave the staff at home. You're not going to need it. And the text goes on, verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. So Jesus intends for his disciples to invest in the places to which their mission takes them. Part of the discernment that they are to develop includes identifying, quote, some worthy person, which here means someone who is somehow receptive to what they have to say and what they have to offer. Now, of course, such a thing isn't always obvious, and there again, a relational investment is necessary. So the idea is that they go somewhere, they find someone, and then they stay with them. In essence, they live with and alongside them for a short period of time. Don't move flippantly from place to place. Look for receptivity rather than like the best setup. And notice the plan is not go into the village, set up a nice spot where people who agree with you can hang out and hope that a receptive person wanders in. The plan is not go into a village, get a nice comfortable spot for yourself, and be nice to people when and if you cross paths with them. Jesus' approach is actually far more direct, and it's terribly intimate. And the peace to which the text refers is the, the message that the mission carried. The kingdom of God has come near. That's the peace that they're giving. And Jesus likens this to a Jewish greeting or a Jewish blessing, peace be with you. If they'll hear you out, unpack everything that that means. If they won't have it, take your message and move on. And Jesus says, some of them will not have it. Look down at chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Wow, that's intense. What does that mean? Um, Let's start with the dust thing. In the first century, when Jewish people traveled into foreign territories, they were taught a kind of spiritual custom. So before you re-enter Palestine after being in pagan territory, you got to shake the pagan dust off of your clothes and your sandals. And the idea was that pagan places were so thoroughly unclean that before you come back home into the clean space, even if you haven't compromised your ritual purity, just to be sure, shake the actual tainted dust off of your person. So Jesus is picking up on that custom, and here he applies it to Jewish people who will not receive the kingdom, which is a pretty intense thing to infer. And the point being, those who will not have the kingdom, anyone who will not have the kingdom, Jewish or pagan, 
is in real spiritual danger. And of course, we also know from Matthew's gospel that even this whole custom of shaking the dust off has to be done in a loving, peaceful way because Jesus taught his apprentices to be gentle, to love their enemies, all that stuff. So to have your peace returned to you meant that the disciples would face encounters in which they just had to sort of concede. Man, we hope to bring peace here. Clearly, you are not interested, interested so we're going to take our peace and leave. Let's read on. Verse 16, I, Jesus... Am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. This made me think of the way that often when I talk to certain people about my commitment to nonviolence because of Jesus, they ask very strange questions, usually built on like the mother of all hypotheticals, which is, oh, so you mean to tell me if someone broke into your house and was about to kill your wife that you would just sit there and let them? And to which I usually reply, well, no, because that's dumb. Uh, But the ridiculous presupposition here is that when in a very dangerous, albeit very unlikely predicament, your only two options are to kill someone or just sit down and do nothing. And here, Jesus is, I think, combating that same kind of foolishness. Yes, we are sent out in a kind of helplessness. We're like sheep amongst wolves. We're forbidden to do violence commanded to love enemies, kept from garnering any wealth for ourselves, pushed from the nest of apprenticeship into the mission of an often hostile world. But, Jesus says, that doesn't mean that you have to be helpless. It doesn't mean that you have to be dumb, foolish. It is possible, he says, to be gentle and peace-loving while also being quite clever or cunning. And the apprentice of Jesus is to do no harm But that doesn't mean that they're doomed to immediate helpless suffering suffering and persecution. And Jesus goes on in verse 17. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. That first line, be on your guard, can be translated, be wary of people. Um, Lately, I've been trying to find a a Jesus-centric center in this. I've been honest with you guys about the way that in my brokenness, I'm often pessimistic by nature. I can see the worst in things, sometimes the worst in humanity. Um, This season of our country does that to me. I see all this outrage and lament about the current political landscape, the way it's churned up, America's latent racism and greed and xenophobia and sexism and, and just general selfish hatefulness. And I see all this agonizing over it, this misery and these tantrums. And sometimes I think, This is what we're like as humanity. These things were always here. They're just being aggravated at the moment. And people cry out, how did this happen? Who is to blame? How did this person get elected? Or how will this other person get elected instead? How have things declined so rapidly? And part of me thinks, actually, it seems terribly appropriate, seems fitting, seems like an accurate representation of humanity. I don't like it. I'm not okay with it. But really, it doesn't surprise me at all. But there's a problem here because... Conversely, I do not personally believe that all human beings are inherently despicable. I just don't. I do not think that that's what the Scriptures teach, and I do not believe it. I do not believe that all human beings are fundamentally debased and utterly depraved. I believe that human beings are made in God's image. I believe that we are broken, we are bent out of shape, but we are capable of good because we bear the image of a living God. And that doesn't mean that we're awesome, clearly, And the mission of Jesus sits in that tension, love people, be moved by compassion for them. But then, just a few lines later, be wary of people. 
And Jesus is, as usual, teaching a nuanced center. Love enemies, be peaceful, be gentle, but be wise, be cunning, and be wary. Because they'll get you arrested, they'll take you to court, they'll beat you up. And the text continues, verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, uh, don't misunderstand this. I don't think that Jesus is saying that if you get into a sticky situation, God will suddenly like commandeer your will and use you like a puppet. The point Jesus is making is that the disciples, as they go on this mission, if they get into a sticky situation, they won't be alone. God Himself will be with them. And because of that incredible, overarching, nearly too good to be true promise, they can relinquish worry. Do not worry. And this is important because Jesus believes things are going to get wild. Look at verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, so Jesus is not bothering to pad any of this. The long and short of it is, it won't always be easy, really. It won't always be fun. It won't always be safe, the mission of Jesus, that is. Now, of course, if you read the entire gospel and the entire New Testament, it's clear enough that it's not always this dire, it's not always this intense, it's not always this dangerous. But the point is, it can be. And check this out. Contained in this short block of text is something remarkable, a quotation of Jesus that appears nearly verbatim in every single biography of Jesus' life, which is really rare. And that line is this one. You will be hated by everyone because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In fact, it shows up twice in Matthew's gospel alone, and it shows up, albeit with a slightly different wording here and there, in every biography of Jesus' life. Now, there's actually something important I want to say about this, but before we get there and before we conclude tonight's teaching, I want to take a look back at where we've been in tonight's text and talk a bit about how this particular passage of Scripture informs our lives together as disciples of Jesus. So let's think back through this passage and zero in on a few pressing details. If you're taking notes, this is for you. The first is when Jesus prepares his apprentices for their mission to do the kinds of things that he does, he sends them out together. And that's crucial. Practicing the way of Jesus simply is not done in isolation. All throughout the entire New Testament, it is simply assumed that this radical new way of life only exists in the context of community and intimate relationships. And I'm not just talking about being present at and participating in the local church, though I do believe personally that that is one dynamic of community. What I mean is that Jesus assumes that whether you are walking the harrowing road of personal formation and discipleship with all its pain and glory and pitfalls and celebration, or whether you are intent on actually learning how to do the kinds of things that Jesus did, you cannot do either all by yourself. You'll have to navigate the messiness of life and discipleship and spiritual formation with other disciples of Jesus. You'll have to attempt the radical way of Jesus with other disciples of Jesus. And next, as they go, they're given specific guidelines for their mission. And the first is simplicity. Do not bring extra stuff. Don't generate profits. Do not strut and fret your hour upon the stage, so to speak. If you're known for anything, let it be 
never pretense, never extravagance, but simplicity. And maybe, you know, you're thinking, oh, easy, done, I'm not extravagant whatsoever. But I want you to think back to Jesus' radical teaching on money and remember that most, if not all of us, are considered wealthy by a global standard. And I don't think that means that we can't possibly accomplish the mission of Jesus, but I do think it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't even want His apprentices to be suspected of being motivated by financial concern. And when they carry on with this mission of simplicity, He wants it done via the vehicle of relationships. Uh, Next couple of slides, I think. Find someone, go to their house, stay there. Why would you do that? Because how else can you actually invest in someone in their life? There are times when doing the kinds of things that Jesus did happen in random, brief, one-off encounters. I've seen it happen. It's, It's incredible. It's beautiful. But I would argue that most of the time it happens within the close proximity of relationships over a long period of time. You and I aren't traveling the first century, you know, Palestine on foot, to be clear, if you were confused about that. So I wonder if the instruction for us, many of us, might be something more like put down roots in a place, learn about that place, meet your neighbors, know your schools, learn the needs of the community, the DHS office, be close, be present, not detached, not distant, not hiding out in your comfy little home, become a faithful presence. And that presence must be one of peace, not one of force. In the words of Jesus, do not carry a staff. It could get rough, people may dislike you, they could do violence to you or to your reputation or to your livelihood, and yet You must turn the other cheek. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Never repay evil for evil. Love your enemies. Bless. Do not curse. And to do that, you'll need to be sheep amongst wolves, innocent but cunning. Power under rather than power over. One simple truth inherent in this dynamic reality that we call the kingdom of God, which is something that I believe that the heated political left and the heated political right consistently miss is that human beings cannot and will not be forced into the kingdom. You cannot legislate the kingdom. You can't enforce laws to uphold kingdom ethics. No political party will preserve the kingdom. No political party will bring it down. So, Jesus' apprentices should not reach for power over other people. They should be, in a sense, meek but not foolish, innocent but not idle. And therein lies the incredible counterintuitive secret of the kingdom mission. When you reach for power over other people, you know, legislation, force, emotional manipulation, you can, at best, regulate behavior from time to time. But when you reach for power under people, when you serve and sacrifice for others at great personal expense over extended periods of time, when you suffer and persist and yet do no violence, then you unlock the true power to change lives and change the entire world, even if you suffer along the way. So what happens when the suffering arrives? Don't worry. You won't be alone. These are not cryptic marching orders. This is not a mission with mysterious leadership and classified motives. God will go with you. He will know you and walk with you and make Himself known to you. He will talk to you and guide you and compel you and even talk through you. And if that's true, what is left about which we might worry? I sometimes hear conversations amongst disciples of Jesus in this post-Christian world, a world that seems to have lost its mind, frankly, from time to time, a world steeped in political acrimony and a cultural battle royale at all times. 
And these reasonably, understandably frightened disciples of Jesus wonder things like, man, how are we going to make it out here? What will we say? What if they hate us? It's getting harder and harder to be a disciple of Jesus. We're often thought of as uneducated or, you know, foolish or not, not as enlightened as the person who's read this book or heard this TED Talk. What if the world descends further into chaos? And to all of this, Jesus replies, don't worry. Do not be afraid. And listen to this. Believe it or not, this is the single most repeated command in the entire Bible. Do not be afraid. And what comes next is as stark as it is liberating. Everyone will hate you because of Jesus, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The final vanguard in the mission of Jesus is faithfulness. So when we clamor at the feet of Jesus, understandably, and I'm right there with you guys, well, what if they hate us? They will. What if it becomes difficult or, or scary or dangerous? It might. Do not give up. Faithlessness is, at least in my estimation, easily chief among celebrated attributes in the modern world. Deconversion is the new conversion. There are books and podcasts and blogs and documentaries about the beauty and wonder of denouncing Jesus and leaving your faith behind. And Cam actually told me just earlier today that there's an entirely new branch of professional counseling specifically devoted to helping people navigate their deconversion experience. And of course, it rarely appears so sudden and so harsh. Most people don't just wake up one day and say, forget this whole Jesus thing, I'm out. It starts with a gradual wandering. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Or I like Jesus, the church is okay, but I don't really like the Bible. Or I like Jesus, some of it's all right, but you know what, I like all these other spiritualities as well, and I think they're kind of the same and just a little different here and there, and it kind of keeps on slipping. And one day, people find themselves actually waking up to say, you know what, I'm free from all that. I know better. I've evolved. I've moved on. So here's my album or social media post or blog or whatever it might be. And to me, frankly, it is becoming a sad cliché. The story of the once Christian who abandons their faith for some kind of fluid new hybrid faith of their own design or for no faith at all is a sad cliché. And listen, I hope it should be obvious by now if you've been around here for more than one Sunday that I am not in any way down on being thoughtful or educated or open-minded. I want so badly for us to challenge ourselves to learn and grow and consider new ideas and approach the Scriptures with balance and humility and acumen. And I want to do all of that and be faithful to Jesus. And frankly, I'm in. I, I am in, man. I do not care how many people I see break down along the narrow road. I do not care how many people sell out or bail or how many posers give up or lay over and die. I want to keep my mind open. I want to challenge myself and learn and grow and remain faithful to Jesus. No selling out and no compromise whatsoever. And Jesus himself summarizes all of this beautiful. Let's end by reading this last little bit of this passage, Matthew 10, verse 24. Jesus says, The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. The head of the house has been called Beelzebul. How much more the members of his household? 
In other words, if it ever seems hard, if it ever seems troubling or seems alienating, if people understand you, if it's lonely, you're in good company. And look at this. Jesus takes all this incredible high bar, way of life, beauty, and he makes it wonderfully simple. Try to be like your teacher, and that's enough. As if it's that simple and that within our reach. And listen, that's because it is. Jesus embraced a life of community. He put aside isolation and private creature comforts, and we can do the same thing. Jesus embraced simplicity. He put aside extravagance and wealth, and we can do that too. Jesus did not keep the people and places in his life at a distance. He moved into the neighborhood. He created relationships. He invested time and energy. You can do that. Jesus didn't defend himself with violence, even though that probably could have saved his life. He lived peacefully. That's something that you and I can do as well. He didn't reach for political power. He actually actively rejected it, and it was expected that he would take it. He did not coerce or force anyone into the kingdom. Jesus served and sacrificed for people instead, and we can do the same thing. Jesus was, get this, completely free from worry and anxiety. Don't you want that for yourself? Man, I know I do. And if the scriptures are accurate, and I believe they are, we can have that same thing in our lives, freedom from anxiety and worry. And Jesus was, of course, the portrait of faithfulness without compromise. So let the same be said of all of us who would be given the great and beautiful honor of apprenticing Jesus. Let's pray together.